The Akkad and Kokai Report, episode 110. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this next episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. We have the pleasure to have as our guest, Russ Roberts, who is well known to many in our audience. Russ is an economist and author. He is the John and Jean Donald Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He wrote several books, including most recently, Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverse Incentives Caused the Financial Crisis. But he is known most of all for Econ Talk, his weekly podcast hosted by the Library of Economics and Liberty. Russ, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thank you very much for, for coming on. So, Ross, you make no bones about um, your support for free markets and the economy in general, um, but you know you're not an anarchist. Um, I think I've heard you describe I've heard you describe yourself as a classical liberal, uh, which you know for most people means someone who believes in a more you know a smaller government, a more minimalist government that plays a limited role in our lives. You know, perhaps you'll, you'll expand on that for us, but. You know, over the course of the last few years, you've had the chance to interview uh, a lot of very influential and innovative people in the medical field, you know, many movers and shakers. Um, And these people, you know, they have a range of views in regards to government intervention in medicine. And uh, and you also, like most people, have had your own personal dealings with the healthcare healthcare system. So maybe our first question is, you know, kind of open-ended, you know, as you reflect on your conversations with the people you've interviewed and your personal experiences, have your views about um, government and medicine changed or evolved, or you know where does it stand now? Uh, they've changed a lot. Um, kind of ashamed of how much they've changed. Not not because I've betrayed any earlier beliefs that I had, but because I'm kind of surprised at how naive I was about the role that government played. Uh, government's role is is so complex that. Certainly, the people within the system don't fully understand it. Um, I've tried to get people to explain it to me who you'd think would know about it. Um, people collect data, say, on what's called uncompensated care for hospitals that are, they sometimes get reimbursed for that. They can't explain it to me. I've read a number of Medicare documents on it. They're so complex. They're so, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a Byzantine labyrinth uh, of, of complexity. So one way to look at our healthcare system is, and I think it's the way most people look at it, and I think this is incorrect, is that you know it's a market-based system more or less. You know, there, there there's some interference from the government, but you know basically it's free market in the sense that you know doctors can charge different prices, hospitals charge can pick the price they charge for various uh, services, operations, uh, equipment that they might provide for you, an MRI, a CT scan. Uh, so it's it, there's a market, and you get to choose. You know, you might have insurance, yes, but you get to more or less choose your own doctor or choose your own healthcare plan. And there's competition in, in some sense, and so that's always been uh, related. To, that's something of my view until about the last few years, when I started to think, you know, look more closely at it and learn more about how the system works. And I realized it's not just that. Well, the price is artificially high because, say, we subsidize healthcare, which we do. We subsidize healthcare. 
We subsidize it through Medicare, we subsidize, which is care for old people. We subsidize through Medicaid, which is care for very poor people. We subsidize it through the government uh, tax deductibility of certain health care expenses that employers and employees have to deal with. So the system is, quote, subsidized. So the demand is encouraged by various government actions. At the same time, the supply is constrained by various government actions. So the supply of doctors is constrained by the American Medical Association. The supply of certain specialties is constrained in complex ways I don't fully understand. Hospitals are not allowed to just be created by entrepreneurs or business people or, or charitable people who want to start a hospital in, in many, many states. You have to prove there's a need for your hospital, and that determination is determined by the existing hospitals, which is the, one of the most lunatic things that there is in American public policy. So there's a lot of, quote, what we would say are interferences in the market. And I always thought, well, okay, so that means that because we've artificially increased the demand and artificially reduced the supply, the price is higher than it otherwise would be. But that is really not the right way to think about how government intervenes in the healthcare system. Because it intervenes in about, a, oh, about a million more ways that are much more complicated and hard to see. But I just told you the things that you might learn in a health economics class if you're an undergraduate. And those are useful things to understand. But that's just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. And when you start to look more deeply, what you realize is that the simplest way to think about it for me is that very few people are spending their own money. They're spending other people's money. And when you spend other people's money, you don't spend it very carefully. Now, part of that's because it's subsidized. So if I'm not paying for my health care because uh, I know the government will pay for it, I want more of it. The government knows that. So they, in certain dimensions, they try to restrain it. But it's, that's just the beginning. There's so much um, intervention and restraint and cultural accretion around the processes of healthcare. I'll just take one example that, that I'll pick two examples. Should I keep going? Yeah. 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 So I'll, t I'll take two examples. The first is, uh, happened to a friend of mine. He, he had a back problem, went down at the, uh, at the bus stop on the way to work. His friend's around there, the people waiting with him, called uh, 911 because he couldn't move. And they, set, they took him to the hospital. We got him to the hospital. They kept him overnight, and they sent him home with some painkillers. They couldn't do anything for him. Uh, they sent him home in an, in an ambulance, by the way. Now, I don't remember the exact amount that that <laughs> uh, joyride it mm -hmm. cost. It, it, it was over $20,000. Uh, now, my friend didn't pay 20000 because fortunately he had insurance. The insurance argued with him about whether he needed the, the ambulance on the way home, and there was a big right. debate about that. But, but finally, it turned out it cost him, let's say, let's pretend it was $500. I don't remember the amount. But let's say he didn't have insurance. He didn't think about it. Most of us don't, right? You know, you don't get in the ambulance and say, well, what's this going to cost? When you pull up at the emergency room, you don't say, what's it cost here to stay tonight? And there are many glorious things about being in that room, by the way. The equipment's extraordinary. It's a, you know, we have we have an incredibly great healthcare system if you don't have to pay for it out of your own pocket. It's it's unbelievably fantastic. Uh, and that's one of the pleasant things about it. But the bottom line is, is that there's no other part in our economy where after you're done with service, they send you a bill that can continue being charged for months afterwards. Because an anesthesiologist could have said afterward, oh yeah, I did while you were in there, I did this little thing and Actually, I'm not in your insurance plan. They didn't ask you because you were in pain and nobody ever asks, actually. So 
mean, that's just a crazy system. Sure. And then the worst part of that is, is that, and I, I interviewed uh, Marty McCary about his new book, the, the Price We Pay. Some hospitals sue people because they can't pay these numbers, and they garnish their wages for a fee that they never agreed to pay for a service they never agreed to. And it's, by the way, it's not just because oh you're in pain. It's just sort of normal practice. You go into a hospital and say, oh, you know, what are you doing? Oh, it's just a little thing. We're going to take you, give you an MRI. Nobody says, well, what's that going to cost? Because most of the time, you never pay for it. So you just say, yeah, give me it. Yeah, I'll have it. Yeah, give me that. Sure, I pay zero. But that's a nuts, crazy, absurd thing. Right. So that whole system of insurance, hospital pricing, and uninsured people makes no sense whatsoever. It shouldn't exist. It's nuts. It's crazy. But uh, what's... Uh... That was only one of the examples. It, 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 I have the other right. one later. We'll talk. Sure. Go ahead. I mean, what? I mean, should government play any role? Is there any role for governments in healthcare? And I, you know, just to tell you here, uh, I, I'm the anarchist here as far as me medical care is concerned. Anish is more wishy-washy. You know, he will, <laughs> whenever, whatever the mood is of the day, he will. Uh, uh, you know, allow the government to subsidize him or <laughs> subsidize his friends or his uh, favorite it's called, cause. It's called being pragmatic. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, what, uh, you know, do you, have, do you have any thoughts? I mean, should there be any role whatsoever? Well, it's an interesting example. What I, the one I just gave, uh, President Trump signed a uh, executive order. I think it takes uh, effect at the end of this year on transparency and pricing. Mm -hmm. One of the weirder things is, if you go in and say, you know, actually, I'd like to know what the price is before you give me whatever it is, the treatment, the test, the procedure, whatever it is, they, they won't tell you. That's a, that's the other part of it. It's totally absurd. It's not just that they don't tell you. They won't tell you. If you say, you know, I really want to know, they'll say, we don't know. We'll tell you later. <laughs> right. But that, that, so, Sure. So, so, so a natural thought is, as this is the president's thought or whoever encouraged him to do this. The natural thought is, well, maybe it should be a requirement that you post your price. On the surface, that seems like a pretty good idea. But you really should ask the question before, why would you have to do that? Why would there ever have to be a market, a transaction in, in, a, in a modern economy where you're not allowed to know the price before you get it? And my suggestion is, is that that phenomenon exists and occurs because of the other mess-ups in the system that the government has perpetrated. There's not enough competition, is the simplest way to say it. Competition, not, there are a lot of businesses that would like to charge you later and not tell you what the price is until they've after they've served you and then be able to take you to court if you don't pay it. Everybody would like that, but it doesn't happen. And why doesn't it? Why is it that I see a nice shirt on uh, at REI or at Land's End or at wherever, and I order it online, and, and they send it, and, and there's no price there. I just say, oh, it looks good. I like the material. And then they send it to me, and it's $400. What? I, I thought it'd be more like 20 No, it's 400 it turns out. Well, I'd like to return. No, there's no returns. You can't return your, your kidney transplant or your the drugs they put in you while you were in right. the emergency room. So that's absurd. We understand that. Why doesn't that happen? Wouldn't REI like to, not REI, their co-op, but wouldn't, wouldn't Land's End or some other company like to do that? Well, they would, but they can't because you wouldn't buy it. Because they have too many other competitors who post their prices. So you have to ask the question, why is it that there's so many doctors and so many hospitals that do not post their price? And the answer is they don't have to. It's not competitive enough. So something's gone terribly wrong. And one of the reasons it's gone wrong, it's not just it's not competitive enough, is that the average consumer doesn't care. And that's because they've negotiated 
through their employer an insurance plan that is bizarrely opaque again. Every hospital has a different price for different insurance plans. That would never happen anywhere else in the economy. People say, well, healthcare is different. It's because it's life and death. That has nothing to do with the problem. Food is life and death. You can't live without food. Doesn't mean food has to be provided by the government. Doesn't mean food has to be is always really expensive because you do anything to get food. It's plenty competitive, and it's in fact incredibly cheap. We have an obesity problem. All right, all yeah. right. You've nicely you avoided answering my question, um, <laughs> which was because, what was your question? Which was <laughs> should should there be any role for governments? <laughs> sure, there should be a role for government. All government right, government should enforce contracts. Uh, you okay. could argue they okay. should have. Some minimum standards. I don't believe in that myself, but it's not a horrible thing. If if you wanted to certify people like doctors, we don't just certify; we license. That's a, I think a mistake, and yeah. and nurses as well. I think that's a mistake. But yeah. fine, be pragmatic. Let's have, yeah. let's have some licensing. Let's have some certification. But once you have government effectively through Medicare, by the way, is a huge piece of this. Uh, it's the it's the tail that's wagging the pricing dog. Uh, the the subsidization of health insurance through the deductibility of employer payments is another problem. If we could get rid of a bunch of those things, we could get some sanity into the system. Right now, it's insane. Sure. So one of the frustrating things about about what you're talking about in terms of the, the culture of this is that you know um, there was an interesting reaction to uh, you know, this the, the recent COVID nineteen uh, epidemic pandemic has. Uh, uh, raise the profile of telemedicine, right? Telemedicine, where you have sure. a, you know, video chat, and and you can uh, examine patients and 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 um, you know, prevent them from coming into the office to try to mitigate this whole thing. Um, and early, early on, I think Blue Cross of North Carolina or something came out and said something about, oh, we're going to pay for telehealth, and there's a bunch of folks saying, oh, you know, we got to get CMS on board on, on telehealth. And my first reaction is that I'm, I'm an I'm an independent, uh, uh, you know, private practice. Uh, and not hospital own guy. My first reaction was uh, was kind of a, an eye roll and kind of a you know it was kind of depressing because you know I would love to be able to go to my Medicare patient population and as part of some type of package offer them some type of telemedicine thing where we do yeah. it on a monthly basis. The moment that there's an insurance CPT code that's generated, all of a sudden it's illegal, right? I, I am now not able to kind of figure it out figure it out myself with the patient panel that I have so that I can offer it, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I have a bunch of, maybe I have a panel of patients that, that, you know, are, uh, make salaries north of 200 K a year. And, you know, I charge them, I charge them X, Y, and, you know, X for a telemedicine package package, which then allows me uh, to take, you know, a panel of folks that aren't as well off and I can charge them a different, you know, a differential amount. You know, as would happen somewhat in, in, in a regular market, you know, the landscaper charges me in my neighborhood something very different than the landscaper charges in, in perhaps another neighborhood. But the moment Medicare steps in and puts in puts in a, a code, the moment Medicaid comes in and puts in a code, all of a sudden we as practitioners or as providers are, are um, as doctors are, are kind of beholden to that rate. And, and, and what happens is that early on, it's a little bit of a sweeter, you know, they'll, they'll make it a little bit of a sweet deal, right? And as, as folks then, you know, pile into doing it, because health systems will see, oh, look, there's a CPT code that pays this, and they'll pile onto it and scale it in a massive way. Um, uh, then CMS will say, oh, my goodness, you know, the volume of this is going up. And now they'll start cutting the rates. They'll increase the coding requirements for it. And six years, seven years, eight years, nine years down the line, you'll be left with some 
terrible, <laughs> terrible reimbursement for this telemedicine thing, which which doesn't really work. So my first reaction to that, which you know was not really felt by you know a bunch of other doctors, like oh this is awesome, this is fantastic, this is what we should be doing, was oh goodness here we go, here here's yeah. here's the government ruining something else. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they would just stay stay out of it. Right. No, it's a but that, uh... but, but that and it's also that culture. Like so, once once it's paid for, now now it's it becomes very difficult for you as a as a doctor to go to a patient and say, well, you know, we, we, I, you don't necessarily this shouldn't be part of an entitled. You know, it, it creates a culture of entitlement, if you will. And the other part is. of it, you know, I alluded to earlier is that since most of the time I, as a customer, am not paying for the services I'm receiving either because I'm on Medicare or Medicaid or I'm insured, I'm just not in the habit of asking. I'm not in the habit right. of shopping around. Right. Once you spend your own money, which is the health savings account, gives you a little bit of that in your life. Once you're spending your own money, you start saying, well, wait a minute. I'm not just going to go automatically to the MRI provider that my uh, orthopedist suggested. I'm, I'm going to shop around because guess what? They're all about the same. They're pretty close. Sure, some might be better than others, but it probably isn't related so much to the price. So that whole system is uh, create a culture where customers are not in the habit of either shopping or asking. Right. But, you know, the, the problem, I think, starts with the question um, that we need to say, right? It's a social question. It's, it's the question of the safety net. Sure. Right? So that's how it starts. That's how Medicare started you know, and, and with Medi-Cal and so forth. So, right. So, so do you think there's a role? I mean, cause that, that's, I think for, for most people, the most compelling argument in favor of government intervention, we don't want people, you know, poor people dying on the streets and, and so forth. We need a social well, safety net. You already and said you didn't, you already said you didn't believe in government. So I don't, you right. Do, you obviously no, no, no. want people to die in the streets cause you, right, don't, exactly. you don't care about them either, do you? <laughs> right. yeah, we're laughing except that, right. you know, get on Twitter. If you ever suggest something about reduced government, you're going to get that that kind of claim. But it, I, I ducked your question before when you asked me, you know, should government have a role? You know, most people are uncomfortable with that because they assume that if government does not have a role, then poor people would have either little or no health care or poor health care. So I think that's a very deep and important thing to think about. And the other question, of course, is, uh, you know, what would the healthcare world look like in a world where there was more freedom for providers to compete, more freedom for providers to innovate in offering services uh, like, say, telemedicine, uh, that could actually be good for not just rich people, but but not rich people. You gave an example where they were cross-subsidized effectively by rich customers, but that's not the only way that poor people could be taken care of. They could be taken care of through competition just because it's just relatively inexpensive to provide some services. They mm -hmm. could be taken care of by charity, they could be taken care of by foundations. They could be taken by care of by a government program. It's imaginable you could have a government program that wouldn't be structured the way the current ones are. That wouldn't be as distorting and 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 awful. So I, I'm 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 not a total anarchist on this. You know, I I, I, I want to maximize uh, how much people spend their own money versus other people's money. But I do think you do have to ask the question. Well, then what would poor people get? And so one way to answer that question is you could look at other markets where we don't subsidize things. Do poor people get cars? Yeah, they get a car. In fact, they get a really good car. They get a really, they get a better car than a rich person got 75, 50, maybe 40 years ago. 
But you might say, well, it's still not right that a rich person gets a better car than a poor person. So a poor person might get a great car in terms of quality, doesn't break very often, gets great mileage, very safe. The leather's not as nice as it is in the rich person's car. Maybe it's vinyl instead of leather. Might have a few, uh, have fewer drink holders. We might be okay with that in a car. We don't really like the idea that in the case of medicine, they wouldn't get, say, the ventilator because they're poor, right? We'd want them to have a, a certain quality of care that would be quite high, rich or poor. And the question then is, would a, would a free market system give that to poor people? That's the key question to me. Uh, and I think, you know, the answer is maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, this, but the current right. system, the reason that people have trouble even imagining this is they look at how expensive healthcare is, and they forget that that price of healthcare today is high because of the system itself, not because that's what the market would provide if we got government less involved. Right. You know, one way that I I'm starting to think about different ways of articulating why the you know poor people would be actually better off. If you focus on you know if you think of medicine precisely as you know in technological ways or you know, that the ventilator and this is, is what's better. And then, you know, it's hard to, to make the, a strong case that the poor would be as well off as if, you know, there, there was, you know, massive subsidy. But if you think of, of medicine really as the quality of the relationship with the doctor, then there's no question they'll be 100% better off than they are when the doctor is forced to, you know, when, it, when it's sort of, uh, you get people. So... So there's no question. I mean, first of all, I agree that, you know, in a free market, the prices will be so low that the difference will be, you know, much less relevant than they seem to be right now. But at the same time, it's really, because I, I really think that the, the distortion with licensing, with all of this, all the modern distortion is that even now, and even people who are free market continue to tend to think about medicine as primarily sort of a, a technical competency that, that you offer. Uh, as opposed to really the commitment of people who just want to help their you know f fellow fellow human beings. Well, I think the, the I think the deeper aspect of this that's ignored that that's I'd say that's half of it. The other half is that people think of medicine and healthcare as something you either get or you don't. You either have the operation or you don't have the operation. And in fact, there's this enormous range of services that are provided. You're focusing on one that's almost always forgotten, which is the connection of the doctor to the patient, the time that the doctor spends listening, the time that the patient feels heard, those are extremely important. We have, I think, mm -hmm. some evidence that, that those are very important. But the other part of it is, is that you know what you're getting is, is extremely complex, and it's not usually life or death. It's usually maybe a little more confidence as to what's really going on. Sometimes it's a treatment that actually doesn't help you. It's a whole side of the healthcare system we haven't talked about yet, which is that under the current system, because the patient rarely pays, a lot of the things that are administered have marge, trivial impact and often high cost to a third party. It's just a terribly wasteful part of our current system. But it's a rich menu. It's a buffet that I think people, you know, I think the, the, the reductio ad absurdum is that there's a person you know, with a heart attack in the gutter who's poor. And of course, well, that person can't afford health care, so they die on the street. That's that that didn't happen when we were a poor country with less government involvement. I don't think it would happen now. Yeah. I think there'd be all kinds of ways that poor people would be helped. But what would be the you know, the standard of care for everybody? What would rich and poor would it be different? And you're saying, yeah, it would be because you'd have a better relationship with the provider who'd have an incentive to 
spend more time with you, to listen better, et cetera. But I think there are all kinds of other aspects that the way we would provide those services and your point that it's a more nuanced thing than just, oh, I bought an operation or I rented a piece of an MRI machine, I think is a great point and often uh, is often forgotten. I, you know, I wonder, um, is, is part of the issue that um, right now, it's obviously we have a system set up that uh, there are certain people that get a lot, a lot more care, a lot, uh, you know, better uh, higher touch, higher um, quality care than others. I mean, we have right now an, an, an inequitable system, even not considering oh, for patients sure. that aren't insured, right? Even looking at all the folks that are insured, um, you know, but but we don't we don't necessarily reveal that to folks. Meaning, it, it seems like, you know, we we have this we have this front that is kind of false that says that if you have if you have insurance, you will get you will get X, Y, and Z care. All of us, in, in certainly in healthcare, and I think most folks that are knowledgeable know that that's not really the case. Um, Why do you say that? Um, Give me an example. What do you have in mind? Well, I mean, clearly the, the patients that are, um, you know, we, I mean, uh, most academic medical centers have uh, signature programs. They have signature programs that, you know, sometimes run forty to fifty thousand dollars a year, um, where if a patient is, you know, gets admitted, they they bump other patients that may be waiting for a bed. They're put up in a signature suite. Uh, they have a certain physician, a signature physician that's assigned to them to make sure they will cut through the lines that may exist. So yeah, that's a secret. It, Nobody knows about that except the signature people. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and, and again, that's and that. And, <laughs> exactly. But you know, it, it happens in Canada too. I mean, in Canada, it's been studied, and clearly, people who are you know, you know, higher income, higher, well-educated people get better treatment in Canada than. Than, uh, than the low wrong, yes, it's right. It's true, it's true everywhere, and, so, and, uh, right. But 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 we have this we have this facade of equality that you know, yeah. and, and it and it does really. I mean, one of the things that amazed me when I was a medical student, um, first experiencing like you know, kind of being thrown into it, and I, and I trained in in a very poor part of North Philadelphia, um, and you know, again, simply you know, the the uh, the way we treated. Um, the homeless individual who was found, uh, who was found down, you know, he was in, he was in Bay one and in trauma Bay two, maybe some very well healed uh, person who had a car from society Hill. I mean, the care that they're getting delivered at that, at that moment, you know, is very, very similar. There's no difference. In right and very good. Right, right. Very good. And, you know, and compare that to compare that to a system like India, where, you know, if you have a heart attack, uh, the type of stent you get placed is dependent on whether your relatives can pull together enough money or not to get the the better stent, the U.S. stent versus the homemade stent that, you know, it may be of questionable quality. Um, of course, so, you probably shouldn't get a stent at all because it turns out the evidence suggests that well, they don't really help. I've just been finding out about well, that. It's it, kind of discouraging. But go ahead. Sorry. So you know, that, that, that's a topic. We have to bring you back. Yeah, we should, to, right. To, right. To we should talk break, about that. Break yeah. you, the, the break you of that as well. But <laughs> we're both well, cardiologists, of course. What? But anyway, are you both cardiologists? We're both yeah. cardiologists. Oh, okay. Am I right? <laughs> well, uh, yes, but it, yes well, and no. yes and no. <laughs> it, it has to be. You have to be very careful about what you know the the, the statements that say this treatment works yeah. and that treatment doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, you know, because that's that's really it comes with all kinds of uh, presuppositions. So. Yeah, I hear it. Right. But but okay. the issue the issue but the issue is in terms of creating a more saner system that doesn't make everyone poor, where in 24 hours in the hospital doesn't result in 
a $34,000 bill is that yeah. you have to be the society has to be okay saying explicitly that not everyone is going to get the same care. Do you think that we're going to be we're ever going to be okay with that? Meaning, you know, foundations, etc. We're you know we're going to be in a place where you know you you have to explicitly state that. Like, will some political candidate no. ever 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 go out and say that? Well, depending on what you can pay, you know, you may not get the exact same care. Now, you and I know that you know that difference may not be hugely significant in India. In India, till very recently. You know, the type of stent you, you have is a stent that may result in more restenosis, but doesn't cause, it doesn't have a difference in mortality. You know, these, these, these smaller things that, that may not matter if you have to pay for it, right? If you have to pay for the stent, you may go for one that's 10,000, you know, 10,000 rupees versus the one that's 100,000 rupees based on, you know, what you can do. But, but that has to be acknowledged up front. Right now, you know, the, the type of cancer treatment you get Right. If it's the latest drug and it costs 200 grand or whatever the list price is and whatever it comes down to, it doesn't matter because nobody's paying. But are we are we going to be OK in a society where the folks that are wealthy and can pay will end up getting a lot more chemotherapy, whether or not that <laughs> results in massive gains or not in, uh, in you know, outcomes no. that people care about? No, I think that's that's the right way to think about it. I do, and I think it's worse than that, actually, from my viewpoint. So let, let me can I make my position yeah. even harder to defend yeah so um I, I think part of the challenge here is that the current system it i can't even it's hard to even imagine how a private uh, market would work and how the issue you're raising would play out so for example uh use the example of a stent if you've spent any time in a uh, in a serious setting as you have with patients, you know it's not just stent, no stent, which stent. There's a thousand things to decide all along, and it's a um, another way to think about it is that in a modern ICU, for example, uh, intensive care unit, which is on all of our minds because of um, the coronavirus it's a um it's a technological playground i mean there's, there's every gadget it's extraordinary i mean I, the most the most trivial example and this is small but it's it just just an example of how detailed it is is that the nurse has a beeper on her lapel or his lapel that registers when they enter a room and don't put purell on their hands I mean, that's crazy, right? That that technology, I mean, just the, the tiniest bit of technology that's at work to try to help patients survive this experience. Uh, the bed itself is a, a technological marvel. Uh, every bit of gadgetry that's attached to the patient is monitoring them, sending out signals to the people monitoring it. it it's, it's a glorious thing. Now, it wouldn't exist that way in a world that was different than the one we're in now. Would it be something else? Would it be, it'd be worse, in my view. It'd be a fraction of the price. And, and that difference between what a rich person paid to a poor person paid might be very, very small. It might be literally just that the room's nicer, in which case you and I would probably say, well, that's, I don't mind that. That's, that's the equivalent of an extra cup holder in the Lexus versus the Hyundai 
or the, the leather's a higher quality than the vinyl on the seat, and you wouldn't really offend anybody. What offends us is the idea that you say, well, you know, we'd like to do a, uh, a, a tracheotomy on you, but, you know, we can't because you can't afford it. Sorry. <laughs> that, I agree with you. No one's going to accept that. Not no one, but our, our culture, political system, is not going to accept that. The real question to me is, is that I think the whole medical system would be structured very differently than the way it is now. The way it's structured now, which makes no sense whatsoever, as I kind of hinted at earlier, is that you, the doctor, are paid for a bunch of tasks. That's so weird. Think about that. how weird that is. Again, if the equivalent, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the economy. You, you know, you get on the airplane, uh, we break it out, we get your bill at the end. It includes the stewardess's time, the pilot's time. The pilot bills you separately. The pilot actually doesn't even work for us. Like, well, well, that's crazy. Oh, and you got to pay a fee to the hangar where they park the plane in between. Wait a minute, I didn't, et cetera, et cetera. So the, and then you think about all the technology that you add on top of the fact that the plane flies, all the monitoring and all that. That would be a bizarre thing to price separately. Instead, I just get a price and I compare it to the other. Some airlines are fancier. There's first class seats versus second class seats. But they're really, that's a small thing. We all understand that. If that's the way healthcare worked, We'd be saying, well, that's okay. I don't mind that there's somebody gets to lay down in first class on a long flight and I have to sit up and I save a thousand or two thousand dollars. If that's what it turns out to be, that would be okay. We have no idea what it would turn out to be. We can't even imagine. I'd love to sit down with some people smarter than I am with more healthcare experience to say, if I wanted to take care of you, I know how I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't say, well, every time you come up, there's a really complicated chart. It's got thousands and thousands of codes for every single thing I do to you. That's so weird. Why wouldn't I just pay a fee to say, make me better, take care of me. That's what I want to pay for. I don't want to pay for by the, by the orange juice glass. Yeah, that's $240, very expensive. Orange juice. Well, I would have brought my own if I knew it was $240. <laughs> yeah, we don't allow that. Sorry. So that whole system, it just doesn't make sense. So the question is, we moved away from this current system to a world that was, that was, I don't want to say more like the airplane because I have no idea how competition and creativity of people would yield something different. You know, right now, as I'm sure you know, there are people who do something really different than what we have. There are little pockets of this going on in the economy and the healthcare world. You know, there's Keith Smith at the uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma who posts his prices on the internet. You can get your knee replaced. You can get your hernia replaced, fixed. You can get your, you name it. It's all there listed, drop down menu, get the price in advance, cash only. And they're dirt cheap prices, not just relative to the fake list price that's knocked off by the insurance discount, but dirt cheap relative to the full price after you've gotten your discount. That's a great thing. Why aren't there more of those? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that, but at least there's one to show that it can be done. There are right. people who charge for not rich people, concierge medicine, the equivalent of it. You come see me, you know, you pay a fixed amount. It's very small. It's what, $35 a visit? And I'll help you. I'll take care of you. I'll give you advice. You can tap into my brain as a doctor. That's a wonderful thing that's going on now in certain pockets for not for rich people, for average people, poor people. So I think that we'd have I want to let a thousand flowers bloom. I want to get the government out of not you want to still subsidize poor people for health for heart attacks. Fine. There's so many things we could do before that that would make the system less wasteful and, and more uh, effective. How do we know well, uh, he's a pra he's a pragmatist. He's, he's not he's not looking right. to blow up. The that's right. That's right. <laughs> No, but you're, I mean, you're right. We have, we have to be able to get there, you know, from here. Um, you know, the um, rich people should lead the way by paying more out of pocket. 
Uh, well, right now they, you know, they have for the most part. Even now, they still have their Cadillac health plan. It's absurd. Right. It's absurd. They, they, it's they absurd still, that, that right. rich people get free health care through Medicare. It's bizarre. Why? Why is right, that? Right. It's stupid. Yeah. It's for political reasons, obviously, but it's a. It's you never design it that way. If you're sitting around trying to think of the best way to do it. Do we start a guilt campaign? Is that what's going to change minds? Make them feel guilty? Yeah. I, I think I think it has to be you know there has to be a mentality change. It cannot be a sort of a wonkish type of you know calculation where you say okay this policy will blah blah blah. People have to change their behavior in a really fundamental way. I want to I want to you know I have a few patients who are you know well off and uh, I I more and more I nudge them to pay for their just because I, I do it for self interested reason because you know I I prescribe a generic medication. And more and more now, the, the, it bounces back. The, the insurance company won't pay, even though it will cost $8 for a 90-day supply, right? And why won't they pay? So I, I have no, the machination of uh, the insurance the companies, list. the PBM yeah. and whatnot, not yeah. all this. So, so then I tell my, my patients, listen, do me a favor. It's going to take me an hour to get on the phone. Can you pay for it? And then they say, but for the most part, they say, yeah, I'd be more than happy to pay for it. Go get a coupon at GoodRx and, you know, eight bucks and whatnot. And, and sort of get, get them sensitized. And then little by little, tell them, listen, you're doing the society a favor by, by paying. You shouldn't be paying first dollars, so, you know. So I, I, I told this story on EconTalk once, but it, it, it's, it captures this ethos in a, in a nice way. It, it's a little bit personal. I hope it's okay if I reveal this on the program. But I, I had some issue with my toes okay it's a skin issue uh -huh. so it's fungus or some I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was so the dermatologist looks at it she says um yeah here you go she gives you a prescription take it over to the walgreens across the street it's twelve hundred dollars for a tube of ointment and i've already been told it's not really going to help it it's gonna it'll cure right. it for a few weeks and then it's going to come back i said twelve hundred dollars oh don't worry that's the list price <laughs> i said yeah well it's gonna have to be a pretty good discount she said, "Yeah, it's like and it turned out to be something like thirty-five. So I said, "I don't, I don't think I want it." What do you mean? It's only thirty-five. I said, "But well, what's that twelve hundred mean?" Like I, I felt guilty playing along with this sham, and I didn't know who I was scamming. By the way, I have no idea whether it was the insurance company or my employer or who who's really paying for it. It's just a fake number. And of course, there's a a non-prescription version of this that's six dollars. And so I did something. I wanted to do something. I, I bought one of each and I was going to do a left, right foot <laughs> test to see what the difference was. I never did. Uh -huh. I still have them. They're sitting in, I, right. I, they're still sitting in a bag in my, uh, in my dresser. But, uh, this was like three years ago. I'm living with this horrible right. foot condition, but somehow but, I'm surviving. Right. Kidding. But, it's not a big deal at all. But, but <laughs> I, I think that the idea that that dermatologist, I actually wanted her to feel guilty. Like, this is a scam of some kind. I'm not sure exactly what kind, and I don't want to figure it out, but you shouldn't be prescribing this drug. And but similarly, yeah. I, you know, the whole idea, you know, I've talk, told this story also, you know, I'm at the dentist, and this the hygienist is doing something in my mouth. I said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing a cancer, oral cancer test. Why? <laughs> oh, you know, you know, we, I know the real answer. Oh, we get <laughs> right. to bill 80 bucks for it or whatever. Sure. Like, I didn't ask for it. I don't want to know the results. Probably there's a lot of false positives. Yeah. Get that out of my mouth. But they don't even ask. So I like the idea that we can use some cultural forces here to kind of get people to, to start thinking about it. Part uh, of the problem is, is that doctors as a group have this general have this general sense. And I don't know, Michelle, I mean, it, 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 this is 
should we be, you know, we, we are, we want this utopic perfect world where we, whatever we write for is just covered by, by someone. So, yeah. and you know, it's hard to get, you know, insulin. We're, we're generally a corrupt bunch. I mean, the, it's true. I mean, if you look at the history of medicine, even when it was free market, I mean, you know that we, we always take advantage of the, our knowledge and we try. So in general, we're a corrupt bunch. But as a corrupt bunch, it's a lot easier for us to manipulate the system when we have the licensing privileges and whatnot and that sort of thing than if we actually have to compete against one another. Sure. Right, because in competition, greed doesn't add much, right? So the the the, the honest guy will will end up, you know, better off in the long term, in the long run. Yeah, it it is hard for me to find endocrinologists who will say that you know the older insulin that you can get from Walmart that's twenty five dollars a month that people people survived on for you know decades um, are are a reasonable are a reasonable alternative to you know the the newer um, analogs that are once a day and more physiologic and stuff, you know. Though the, I listened to the one podcast where we talked about the, four, you know, it's actually two times a day. It's, it's two injections a day. And interestingly, one of the on, on one of the tweets, one of the endocrinologists whose daughter is in internal medicine said, you know, she asked the internal medicine her daughter, you know, this insulin thing. Why why can't why don't you just something to the effect? I'm paraphrasing. Why why don't you just use NPH that's really cheap? And the, her daughter, who's just an internal medicine trained, not was an endocrinologist, said, "Well, no, that I mean, what, what the way I've been trained, nobody's ever told me to do that. The way I've been trained throughout my entire, you know, career and teaching has been to use the newer, the newer insulin." Sure. And and you know, it was her mother who's kind of been through, <laughs> you know, all the insulins. It's like, well, I mean, if you can, I mean, you certainly can use this. This is serviceable. So my understanding know, is, for certain us. patients, it's dramatically better to use the modern insulin, and <clears> I understand <throat> that. That's lovely, and. Right. Certain it's great patients, that yeah. for certain patients, yeah. for others, it's not so important. Maybe it's a little more inconvenient. It's a lot more expensive, the modern one. Right. Um, right. It's that's yeah. a whole other issue. I mean, the whole this issue of um, the way that pharmaceuticals are priced. And I think it's really important to talk about right now because uh, I just heard um, – Bernie Sanders railing against greedy pharmaceutical companies in the debate last night. Is that last night? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was last night. Today's March uh, 16th. And, so, and I, yep. I, I, I tweeted about this. Uh, you know, I, I found this a- analogy for me with uh, this this old Rudyard Kipling poem called uh, Tommy. And basically the theme of that poem is, you know, we don't like soldiers unless there's a war, in which case, bring me a soldier. Yeah, that's, you know... It's Tommy this and Tommy this and Tommy wait outside, but it's thank you, Mr. Atkins, when the troops are on the tide, or the troopers on the tide. And Tommy Atkins is the British version of G.I. Joe. So we hate the greedy pharmaceutical company, but we sure hope that that uh, remdesivir that Gilead had for Ebola works for this. And we, we, we don't want to think about how many how many people had to be paid to, to develop that and how many failed trials there were for things that didn't work, et cetera. And we expect... Roche to come up with a new testing thing for the uh, for the existence of the virus. And we've, we've got a bunch of people working on the virus for a vaccine. And we hope they'll do that for nothing cause, or because they care a lot. No, that's not true. We hope we know that money is going to motivate them and going to pay the salaries of the talented people who are going to try to find that stuff. So on the one hand, we have this incredible, unbelievably fabulous pharmaceutical system with incredibly talented brilliant creative people constantly trying to find improvements at the same time that's the that's the happy story the dark story is 
if they develop a drug that extends the life of a patient by two months in a clinical trial of healthy young people as opposed to the real people who are going to take it, they can charge $200,000 or $150,000 a year for treatment. And the generic drug that used to be a competitor is now kind of off the table because who wants the old one that isn't quite as good? Well, the answer is because, well, it's a fraction of the price and it doesn't really save, doesn't really cost you too many months, actually. And that'd be a much wiser thing to do. So but the system is currently structured to encourage drug companies to find mar tiny marginal improvements for enormous gains. That's so how do you how but how do you fix that? Would you would you would you put it to the patient and say, all right, we're we're not gonna we shouldn't cover this and you know, a patients who are wealthier can get the drug that's with incremental improvement. So let's Meaning let's, you're seeing you're seeing you're seeing the you're seeing how it plays out with insulin, right? Like I mean the moment you mention older insulins, I've been told that's poison. Poison. You want to yeah. poison patients. Well that's and also that's what's gonna happen. Yeah, well that's partly a scam that's you know, the, through the uh if I have the thing that costs uh, a thousand times more and it, it adds a tiny bit of value, I'm going to tell you that the other one's poison too. So it, it, there's some misinformation there. There's some problems with doctors' incentives, as I'm sure you know, of, of being taken care of by pharmaceutical companies. That's not so attractive. Um, but you raise a good point. I, like, you know, how would you do that? We just let the rich people yeah. have the stuff that gives you two months more life. Well, actually, I think it'd be those drugs wouldn't exist. I, I don't think anybody would pay that premium right. for the extra two right. months. I think that's just a flaw in the current system. The other flaw in the current system is that generic competition is much more difficult to get started. The law has been structured by Congress to make it harder for generics to compete. That's wrong and stupid and bad and understandable, but wrong. Um, I think there are a lot of things we could do to make drug production more sensible and drug discovery more sensible. The FDA is expensive, obviously. Uh, it adds a lot the way it's currently structured. Uh, to the to the cost of drugs. I mean, there's just there's a lot of things. I think that, again, short of anarchy, like you could buy uh, chemo on the street if you wanted to. I think there are a lot of things we could do that would make the world a better place without going to, to a quote pure free market system. Well, should we pull a Saul Alinsky and not let this uh, COVID crisis go to waste? Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you know, so so now the danger is that all of a sudden there's going to be massive government intervention in everything. You know, they're gonna, they're running our lives. You know. Which is, you know, clearly a danger. At the same time, they're they're getting, you know, they're getting rid. They say, okay, emergency okay. situation. We need to get rid of these regulations. Blah blah. Well, if the regulations are no good in emergency situations, why are they good, you know, to begin with? Uh, and so, has, so right. To I follow mean, up we, on that, has anyone? Has anyone? Yeah. Has anyone? Have you? Uh, you know, you're well versed in the economics literature and health economics literature. Is anyone? actually gotten a sense or a handle of what the true cost of regulations are in healthcare? No, I don't know. I'm not really an expert on it. But I appreciate the compliment, but I, you know, I don't, that's a number would be really hard to begin to even think about thoughtfully. I'm sure that people have tried maybe to estimate it. I think, I think this is a fascinating time. Uh, you know, a lot of, there's a, you probably saw it. There was a column somewhere box. I think there are no libertarians in a pandemic. Um, I had somebody, tweet the other day uh cap why don't you give me an example of how capitalism can solve a pandemic <laughs> like that's so like that's so clever oh wow yeah like like government's doing a great job right like china <laughs> there's the biggest government we know maybe north korea is the biggest i don't even know what's going on in north korea but we know something about what's going on in china that didn't turn out so well so there have been some governments that have done a decent job dealing with the pandemic it appears most of them are small 
Singapore doing a great job. Hong Kong, great job. You know, South Korea seems to be doing a good job. We have no idea, by the way, how Switzerland. much this is. Switzerland. But Switzerland, yeah, great. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very complicated picture. Government does many things well. One of the things it does well is spread information. Um, I think it's really useful to understand the scope of the, of the pandemic, how many cases. Uh, it would be great if government was providing testing. But let's, we know what happened. Government did a really lousy job providing testing, uh, very slow, uh, has done almost no job in reassuring people that there's going to be plenty of ventilators and, and hospital beds. So we're stuck with an, a relatively inactive and not very effective government here in the United States. We're, we're taping this on March 16th. All of a sudden, things are getting really serious, right? There are a lot, there's a lot of people have sprung into action. But the last four or five days until that, at the government level, we had to spring into action. It was all private. There's a thousand things happening at the private level, voluntary level, non-coercive level, bottom-up level, to fight this thing. And the simplest thing is people are staying home. And we, we, right. can, we can get rid of this. If everybody did that, obviously it would work. When I say that, people say, like, oh, yeah, but there are people who aren't staying home. Did you know that? No, I never thought of that. You know, I never <laughs> thought of that, that it's not perfect. You're right. It's not perfect. But the government running everything isn't perfect either. It has other costs. So I think the challenge is in a situation like this where uh, – let me quote Bernie Sanders again. He was all Last night he was making the point that how is it that we have this most expensive healthcare system in the world and we don't have enough doctors? Well, I really don't want to have enough doctors to take care of a pandemic. That That's really costly. It's too expensive. I don't want to have enough ventilators on hand. What I want is a system that responds quickly. I want a system that would build a hospital quickly. I want a system that could generate and build more ventilators quickly. I want a system that could create a vaccine. I want a system quickly. I want a system that could create a treatment quickly. I don't want to invent every single thing in advance because that's really too expensive. And what the current system does, of course, is make those things slow. And that's you know, the sense that, which you're talking that's about. That's a very good point because I think what's happens and what's happening is that there's a conflation between public health and medicine. Now, medicine has become public health, public health, but there's no distinction. Not the same thing. When in fact, I'm perfectly willing to you know, grant the government you know, purview over public health, strictly speaking. You have a foreign invader, the Chinese virus, right? So, okay, fine. You know, let's, let's uh, you know, bring in the authorities to deal with that. But the authorities now are completely bogged into providing care for everyone and these grandiose you know, you, you know, uh, schemes and ventures and whatnot. And so, let me just make yeah. one more point where I think it's extremely important. The, the virtue of this... By the way, I think the, I think I think the administration handled this very poorly from the beginning. I think they understated the the importance of it. They responded very slowly. They failed to encourage people to do the right thing. In fact, the thing that makes me the maddest is that at all these press conferences, uh, there's like eight people all smooshed together behind a microphone, and sometimes they're sharing a microphone, passing it around. I mean, it's just it's it's just a really depressing lack of leadership. Having said that, what that allows is the opposite of what usually happens. What usually happens, economists call crowding out. Government enters into a, an arena, and it makes private initiative either too expensive or inefficient, and so that you don't get any private initiative, and the government has to do everything. We've gone in the opposite direction. For a case, that, as you're saying, you normally would say, well, of course the government should do most of it. So the government didn't, right. for whatever reasons. The government didn't. So how did the private side 
And I don't mean the profit side. I mean the voluntary side. How did we as individuals respond to that challenge? We said, okay, government's not fixing this. We have to fix it. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to go to the uh, restaurant. The NBA is going to cancel its season. The NCAA mm-hmm. is going to cancel its college basketball tournament. Disneyland's going to close. There's a thousand things happening at the private individual level. That's almost always better than mandating it from the top down because when you mandate it from the top down, it's blunt. Everybody has to stay home. And obviously, there's some people, it's a lot harder. There's a bunch of people who work sure. in those restaurants. And, and the government, because it's now banning restaurants, which is, I think, troublesome, uh, worrisome. One of the reasons it's worrisome is that there are people who work there. Oh, we'll fix that. So as soon as government starts to do these blunt, uh, unflexible, inflexible uh, options that don't allow people to, to make personal choices, it becomes extremely difficult to deal with all the consequences of right. it. So they're now in the business of what well, they're going to pay this wages of every single waiter in America. Is that the world it's, we want to live in? It's, it's really crazy. <laughs> it's really crazy. But, uh, Economists are going to have a, a field day with uh, controlled experiments, right? Between what's going on in the UK and the Netherlands, saying no lockdown here, and uh, oh. what's happening in the US and, and so forth. Well, epidemiologists are going to have a field day too. I mean, it's. Right. I think the more interesting economics experiment is that all the economists who study education. I mean, in theory, because this there's going to be like X months here where people are not in school or getting homeschooled and or not mm-hmm. in school at all. Mm-hmm. In theory, right. they're going to have less human capital. They're going to have let lower wages for the rest of their life. I don't think so, really. I think that's absurd. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of experiment economists are really going to enjoy. Correct. A little silver lining that we'll see all, yeah. the, all the stuff that we said we couldn't live without that now we, we're going to yeah. realize that we're, we're doing great. No, but, uh, but it is. But, but it is. I mean, there's so many uh, uh, so many case studies are enough in terms of what exactly you said, the, the government crowding out um, uh crowding out, you know, kind of initiative, right? And so, you know, the, the, the testing issue is a perfect, perfect example where, you know, January 10th is when the sequence of, uh, of, the, uh, of, of the virus was released by the, uh, 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 by, by the Chinese. And literally, once you have that DNA, that, uh, that sequence released, that RNA sequence released, you know, uh, people, people say that you should have, you know, within 24 hours, 48 hours, you should be able to develop a test for that, right? And that's how it works normally, in a world that isn't isn't regulated, but here nobody rushed to develop a test. Only the CDC developed a test because everyone knows that even if even if LabCorp and Quest or or even if some you know academic hospital comes up with their own test with their own primers to make a test, that it would not have been approved by the FDA, right? And then there's this big approval process. So why put in all these resources to try to sequence uh, to come up with a test when you're going to have to go through this? you know, this rigmarole process uh, to get through. And then what happened? The CDC came up with a test. That test that test was flawed. It took a while to figure out that the test was flawed because they were the only test, <laughs> right? And so it's just a perfect, perfect example of how uh, how over-regulation uh, creates a problem. N95 respirators. Go ahead. The N95 respirators, right? We all, N95 respirators have, uh, you know, basically to prevent uh, aerosol transmission and, the numerous reports, you know, it's a fog of war and lots of data coming out, but numerous reports suggesting that healthcare workers are super high risk of getting infected because they're around this stuff all the time. They're getting a big load because they're constantly taking out yep. these patients. And, you know, they need personal protective equipment. And N95 respirators are one part of that important uh, uh, chain. Um, and and, and every, every, they're all out. Like all the hospitals have stocked and locked them up for the surge that's coming. So people are walking into ERs and ER, ER doctors, you know, don't have a 95 respirators available. Now, 
apparently, you know, I learned at the press conference today that there are apparently 30 million, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, respirators that are made by 3M for industrial purposes that the CDC oh, yeah. says, hey, would be fine for, would be fine to use in hospitals, but hospitals aren't allowed to buy them because they're, you know, medical grade and because, the, because the yeah, they're not approved and 3M, 3M is worried about selling to hospitals because if they sell yeah, an industrial sued. grade one to the hospital and the hospital where it gets infected, maybe there'll be litigation and, you know, so it's such a it's such a Byzantine mess that basically at the at the end of the day it results in me walking into an ER and if I wanted to have an N95 respirator right now when we're trying to slow the spread and mitigate and whatnot and maybe it's not a good idea to infect healthcare workers we don't have them because they're rationing them yeah. in the hospitals. It's a nutty system. Yeah, and my wife, who's not an economist, uh, you know, said, "Well, we'll fix this. This is America." Meaning. Uh, you know, if we could ramp up World War II armament production, can't we solve this? And the answer is, of course we can. Yeah. And we would have solved it yesterday. But regulations are making it harder to solve than it, than it otherwise would be. We're less America than we used to be. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, Russ, thank you very much for your time. Great being with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.